Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. We are live from Bloomberg's World Headquarters in New York. I'm Scarlett Fu. This is The Fed Decides. The Federal Reserve will announce its latest monetary policy decision. Here's what you need to know. Janet Yellen signs off. The Fed chair may strike a more hawkish note with an upbeat appraisal of the economy in her swan song. And the Powell era arrives. The leadership transition at the world's most powerful central bank comes just in time for a fresh approach. How will Yellen's successor tackle the inflation puzzle? Plus, March move, fund managers placing their bets on the Fed's next policy action. We'll speak with Bill Gross of Janice Henderson. And my co-host today and every Fed day is Tom Keene of Bloomberg Surveillance. We convinced him to stay late and hang out with us, Tom. Thank you for staying late. Yeah, data check. Good to be here on an important day, an historic day. Right now, to get some thoughts before we see this, uh, I guess, non-decision, Michael McKee with us, Bloomberg's International Economics and Policy Correspondent uh, in Montreal the last couple days on the NAFTA uh, discussions. And Ira Jersey with us, our chief U.S. rate strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. Michael McKee with the sartorial splendor this morning. Yeah. Uh, That picture that we ran at the top of the show, Janet Yellen, I don't know if they can pull that up again. Janet Yellen, where's her collars popped? She's preppy. Today's her last meeting, and there is a tribute going on at the Fed where everybody's walking around with their popped collars. So I thought I would uh, join in like everyone else, and we can can salute Janet Yellen as she uh, It's true. Every photo there, her collars popped. So there's a a thing going on. Pop your collar today. It's Janet Yellen's last meeting. We've got to post you on social media so you can join the party. (laughs) Ira Jersey, no popped collar for you? Uh, I don't know. I I just don't think I can pull it off like Mike can. (laughs) Well, it's going to be her last day. Uh, She's not going to make an appearance. She's not going to give any kind of speech, right? We don't see her. It's very quiet. Right. They they have, uh, by now, they've finished their meeting, and they've sent over the, uh, the, the the press release that they will give to the reporters. Uh, they've already given it to them. We'll get the data in about two minutes, and they'll tell us what happened. But it's done for her now, and it is uh, going to be Jay Powell's Fed. Why aren't they raising rates? So many people are saying we have to wait till March. Why do we have to wait till March 21st? Well, you start with the fact it's a non-news conference meeting, but also there are no inflationary pressures. They're not pushing up right now on us. We're seeing break-evens move a little bit, which gives you a reason to think oh, we're going into March. We'll have more data. They could do that. She also doesn't want to bind Jay Powell in the future with a decision today. So they'll leave it up to him. They'll leave their options open. Say as little as possible. Ira, is there a potential for a surprise here? I, I don't think so. I agree with Mike. But I also think that the, one of the reasons, Tom, that they're not going to hike today is because they hiked in December. And they want to go slow. They want to go measured. Right. And in order to do that uh, at, at the pace that they want to go with three hikes this year, if they hike in January, that means that if there is a blip in the data, if there is some exogenous event, they can't take that back in March. And part of this is the idea of measured. We have Chairman Greenspan coming up later. Great honor to have him uh, with us this last day for Chair uh, 
Yellen this last meeting for Chair Yellen. Mike, define for our audience what measured actually means. Well, he was the one who said basically what you want to do is, is raise rates slowly and keep inflation as flat as possible, not below 2%, but you don't want a lot of volatility. And that was the legacy of the Greenspan years. Some say it led to the great financial crisis because it was too predictable. Rates were too low for too long. And now they're questioning the 2% <laughs> level. So under Jay Powell, we're probably going to have a rethink of the way thing, the, the Fed does its monetary policy mm. business, but not until 2019. Will that rethink include a different way of looking at market behavior and market pricing action? Well, so, so Jay Powell, we, we don't know exactly how he's going to run this Fed, and that'll be interesting to hear his first press conference and his first couple of meetings as chair is going to be important for how the markets take him. And uh, should they take him at face value or should they we read more into exactly what he's saying? All right. Ira Jersey mentioning the markets there. So let's get you a market check right now. The Dow recovering after a two-day slide, actually the biggest <coughs> two-day slide since September of 2016, before Donald Trump was elected. Let's also take a look at the 10-year yield. You can see there uh, the bond prices are moving higher, or I should say lower, and therefore the yields are moving higher. Uh, the yield broke above 2.7% on Monday. The next stop is 3%. Let's go now to Chris Condon at the Federal Reserve with the announcement from the Fed on Janet Yellen's last day. Chris? No. No rate change from the Federal Reserve. No surprise there. The Federal Open Market Committee unanimously voted to leave the target range for the Fed funds rate unchanged at one and a quarter percent to one and a half percent. There were some subtle but important changes in the Fed statement compared to December, where they twice referred to expectations for a gradual adjustment of policy and to gradual increases in the federal funds rate. This time they added some emphasis, referring to further gradual adjustments and further gradual increases. That doesn't seem really to change the meaning of those sentences, but does serve to attract attention and perhaps emphasizes their expectations for further rate increases this year. Uh, at the same time, however, there was no change to the so-called balance of risk statements. Uh, that is, the risk for their economic outlook was again described as roughly balanced. Their language in describing uh, economic conditions was also slightly upgraded. Things like household spending and business fixed investment were described as solid this time around. So none of these really dramatic in and of themselves, but a several subtle but important upgrades, perhaps a slightly more hawkish tone from this uh, statement compared to December, Scarlett. All right, Bloomberg's Chris Condon at the Federal Reserve. Thank you very much. Uh, Michael McKee and Ira Jersey still with us. Michael, you heard uh, Chris talk about a subtle upgrade uh, in, in the Fed's re report and its Fed's, in the Fed's statement. What struck out at you? Well, two things. One, they talk about inflation. Uh, Market-based measures of inflation compensation have increased in recent months, a nod to the break-evens going up. And that sort of supports the idea of this word further inser inserted into it. I don't think there's any question that the Fed's going to be raising rates this year. It's only a matter of how many times. So it may not be yeah. that dramatic a change, but it does say the Jay Powell Fed is going to be raising rates, well, and he had to have signed off on it. What we do here at Bloomberg when we have a Fed day, and particularly one that is historic as this, is go to Ira Jersey for a proper rate translation. Market-based inflation compensation gauges rose recent in recent months. Was that Chair Yellen's recent shopping trip to the grocery store? <laughs> yeah. What are we talking about yeah. in market-based inflation 
compensation gauges. Yes. Translate. So, so what, what that means is what Mike was just talking about. You're talking about tips break evens moving higher. So when they talk about market base, one of their favorite measures is the five-year, five-year forward tips break evens, and those have gone up about 40 basis points since the last meeting, which is is a lot, and it actually <coughs> contributes to almost all of the move in uh, in interest rate markets. So when you look at what's happened to 10-year Treasuries, how they've broken 265 and now at 271, that's mostly been driven by higher inflation expectations, not necessarily real rates, so not kind of this risk premium being built into the market. Mike, Go ahead. No, Mike McKee has to step off soon because he has an important interview to conduct. So I wanted to ask you, uh, is there anything that can derail a March rate hike from Jerome Powell? Uh, probably not. I mean, it, there could be, a, of course, a very surprising drop in inflation. But we're expecting Friday to see the unemployment rate unchanged or a little lower. We're expecting, uh, if you look at ADP, gains of about 200,000 or more in terms of jobs. And that's a sign to the Fed. They don't believe the Phillips curve is dead, that, that we are going to see wage inflation. They'll look past the idea of all these bonuses being given out by companies because right. those are one-time <clears throat> things. But we are seeing infl uh, wage inflation moving up. It was in the employment cost index today. We are seeing uh, commodity prices rise yes. higher. Labor market slack, commodity prices higher. You should get inflation. So the market's going to focus on that idea going forward that the Fed is going to react to that. Michael McKee, thank you so much. I have to go to an important uh, interview and discussion uh, right now on this Fed Day. He's our international economic and policy correspondent. Mr. Jersey will stay with us to translate various items, fixed income, but right now we bring in uh, someone with a real handle on the American economy and, of course, always with a different view from Chicago. Diane Swank is chief economist at Grant Thornton. Uh, Diane, what is the state of the American economy? Martin Feldstein to say, said, uh, said he doesn't think we can get to a 3% run rate. Where exactly is the American economy right now? Well, we are seeing an acceleration in growth, and that's good. And I think what Marty's trying to emphasize is to get to a sustained 3% over 10 years, you need to see a major upward movement in productivity growth and another upward movement that's also commensurate in labor force growth. And right now, we don't have either of those. And so that's what the sustained issue is. You can get up for a while, close to 3%. I think we'll probably get there this year. But the question is, at what price? And does it borrow from growth down the road? Is the Fed behind? I don't think they're behind. I think the real challenge going forward is the Federal Reserve is tightening in two ways or easing up on the um, monetary policy tightening into in two ways. And that is, one, through rate hikes, getting that, normalizing that process, but also they're shrinking their balance sheet. And that's, you know, going to get more and more complicated because it's sort of on automatic pilot, but every quarter they're going to be allowing more and more of their balance sheet to roll off. That means less support for long-term rates from the Federal Reserve throughout the entire year at the same same time that they're raising short-term rates. And that's something that markets so far have not reacted to at all. But as the Fed steps that up, we could see some reaction to that. Huh, interesting. So it could get more complicated. If the market does react, do you believe that the Fed could then change its approach to how it reduces its balance sheet? It certainly could. I mean, one of the things that Martin Goodfriend is uh, Marvin Goodfriend is very known for is his thoughts on the Fed's balance sheet, how he thinks it is. And a lot of people within the Fed system are looking forward to what he brings to the table on his expertise on the balance sheet. They will be looking at that very closely. And even though it's on automatic pilot, the yeah. markets think of it as automatic pilot, it is complicated because it's at the same time that deficits are going to be rising right. and Treasury is going right. to have to issue more debt. Well, Ira Jersey, what's the inflationista representation? 
confrontation on the Fed now, now and for the Powell Fed as well. Yeah, well, there's still some presidents in particular who I think uh, are worried that there's going to be inflation in the future because of the size of the Fed's balance sheet. But now that they're um, they're starting to reduce it, I think that some of those fears and some of those inflationista kind of arguments have to go away a little bit. One thing that, that Diane mentioned was that, you know, there's a Fed balance sheet expert. I, I'm not sure any of us really can claim, like anyone in the world can claim to be an expert on this because right. no one's tried right. to unwind a balance sheet of this size. So, um, so, so I think that that's a risk, especially if you change from what they've already said they're going to D- do. Diane, I like what David Rubenstein said at my panel in Davos. He called it a science fair experiment. I guess that maybe gets to the closest as we can. On what Which can go do horribly with- wrong, as I found out myself. Yes, it, it was, yes, we all remember our disastrous science fair <laughs> experiments. Diane, I want to go to the heritage of Janet Yellen. Let us go back to her important economic club of New York uh, speech here. A good number of years ago, let's try it. I can't believe it's four years coming up April as well. We anticipate that as labor market slack diminishes, it will exert less of a drag on inflation. However, during the recovery, and we certainly saw that, folks, with Chair Yellen, very high levels of slack have seemingly not generated strong downward pressure on inflation. We we must therefore watch carefully to see whether diminishing slack, I think that's what we're in right now, is helping return inflation to our objective. Uh, Diane Swank, this really goes, four years ago, remarkably prescient uh, idea from Chair Yellen, and we really don't know anymore the linkage of inflation into this. Do you have a confidence in where inflation is right now versus an almost fully employed America? Uh, there's, we know where the unemployment rate is. It's, it's not the same unemployment rate, even though it's at a 17 or low as what it was 17 years ago. And it's really not where it was during the boom of the 1990s. And I think that it, things have changed. During the boom of the 1990s, we had falling computer prices that were helping us to keep inflation in check and productivity growth. But there was this sense, there was a famous <coughs> Fed um, Beige book, March 2000, that highlighted um, now hiring pulse required. We're clearly not at that stage right now. And so we're not getting the wage pressures. We don't have the productivity growth to back them up. We're going to see an acceleration of wages. Some of it um, just from the minimum wages alone that are coming through in January. That'll add two-tenths year over year to leisure and hospitality wages, which will help edge up um, the read on the employment figures on wages on Friday. But the real issue is when are we really going to see firms really stop treating people like commodities and treat them more like a diamond in the rough and they have to polish them up, invest in them and really push a little bit to get them to sparkle and have an enduring Mm. um, impact on their human capital. Well, as you and Tom mentioned, uh, Janet Yellen broke new ground in conceding that inflation is a mystery here. She also broke new ground as just being the first U.S. female central banker. Talk a little bit, Diane, about her biggest achievements and also her biggest missteps. Well, I think one of her biggest achievements is this is someone who started in the Fed during stagflation in the 1970s, then was there during the boom with Chair Greenspan in the <clears throat> 1990s, then, you know, was a Fed president, then came back as vice chair, gave up money to do that, um, went through the crisis. In all those shifts in the foundation of the economy, she kept her footing. She didn't was not an ideologue. She actually was able to rethink and say, you know what, the old rules may not apply the way we once thought. And she didn't get caught in that sort of group think of, you know, hey, we're increasing the money supply, so we're going to have a flare in inflation. She said, let's figure this out. And so I think that's her greatest strength. You know, we've seen her, she's been on a learning curve over time. Do I think that she could have um, pushed Congress more in terms of relations with Congress? 
I wish she had had even stronger relations with Congress. I think she did the best she could given the circumstances she was in that said, you know, the best we can, we can always do better. And right. that's where I really think right. the Fed is under a lot of pressure. Diane Swank with us in Chicago with Grant Thornton, and we're thrilled to have Ira Jersey with us today, of course, with uh, Bloomberg. Right now we go to the 13th chairman of the Federal Reserve System. March 6th is a special day. He will play tennis on March 6th, no doubt in celebration of a birthday. Alan Greenspan, honored that you would join us here. Chairman Greenspan, when you look at the 10-year of Janet Yellen, what sticks out to you? What is the most important historical note of the years of Janet Yellen at the Fed? Well, Tom, let me suggest something which you probably are not aware of. It's been a fairly well adhered to a notion on the part of Federal Reserve chairman, when they retire, they don't have comments to be made on their predecessors. Paul Volcker, for 18 and a half years, never once commented pro or con right. on the monetary policy I was involved with. And I think it's a very important notion. It's a very important uh, issue, and I'd like to adhere to it. Well, I'm glad that you're adhering to it. I thought maybe on this day of our final meeting we could get a comment, but we will await that uh, down uh, the road. Chairman Greenspan, one of the things that we're talking about, and I spoke to Martin Feldstein about it, is our expanding debt and our expanding deficit. It gives pause that we will go to $1 trillion in deficit here in the near future. What do those debts and deficits mean to Alan Greenspan? Uh, they mean <laughs> what it's meaning to everybody else, and namely that we're dealing with a fiscally unstable long-term outlook in which inflation will take hold. In fact, uh, I was very much surprised that in the State of the Union message yesterday, uh, all those new initiatives were not funded. And I think we're getting to the point now where we're, the breakout is going to be on, on the inflation upside. The only question is when. We've been through a, almost a decade now of stagnation, and we're working our way towards stagflation, which, as you know, is a combination of both of those. It's a very difficult type of uh, monetary policy to be in, but I think what we're seeing uh, eventually here is uh, an issue where we've got to confront the deficit. In fact, I've been arguing for quite a long period of time that entitlements are eating into gross domestic savings, and they've been doing that consistently, dollar for dollar, since 1965. You knock down gross domestic savings, and in inevitably, domestic debt uh, basically, uh, every type of debt uh, uh, tends to rise. Right. And, uh, and uh, we have to get out of this loop. We are in a bit of a vicious circle here, uh, Chairman Greenspan. You mentioned a fiscally unstable long-term outlook in which inflation will take hold. We are looking at a weaker dollar. It's been weakening for a while now. And the administration has talked up the benefits of a further weakening dollar uh, helping our exports. To what extent will that contribute to inflation? At, at what point does that start to carry over and we see that, that subsequent price rise? Sooner rather than later. 
Very well said. Sooner rather than later. Is there a risk uh, of a weaker U.S. dollar that we are not seeing just yet? I mean, as we await for inflation, what are the risks that it's creating in the financial system right now? Well, look, just remember that the, uh, with the size of the international system, uh, the value of the dollar vis-a-vis all other currencies is a critical issue in the domestic price outlook in the United States. And I suspect that if we get a continued drop in the dollar, which has now been going on for a while, right. uh, that's going to have some additional effect on the price level, the domestic price level, Mm. And that's beginning to rise for a lot of reasons which you've just recently mentioned, namely that uh, uh, productivity has been dead in the water for the last uh, 10 years almost. Uh, Productivity growth has been a half a percent per year. Yes. When it used to be over 2%. That is a huge difference. And that means unit labor costs are now going to start to move up. And with profit margins rising, that tells you where the price level is. Chairman Greenspan, I know you do not want to speak about present and even future Fed chairman. I don't want you to pontificate on what Jerome Powell's to-do list is. But you can talk about the underlying theories of the PhDs at the Eccles building. Does Alan Greenspan still believe in the Phillips curve? I never did. <laughs> well, within that, and then with the, with, the, with the sainthood of the Phillips curve right now, or at least it being as honored as it is, which model should we use as we move into the rest of this decade? Well, let me just say this. There was a big dispute in the 1990s about the Phillips curve. The Phillips curve was supposed to basically engender inflation uh, as the unemployment rate fell. Well, the unemployment rate kept falling, but productivity was accelerating at the time. So unit labor costs didn't move. And uh, we had a period where the Phillips curve just did not work. The Phillips curve presupposes a certain fixed rate in productivity growth. And that is not the way the world works. Yeah. We're missing that right now. Now, speaking of the 1990s, uh, Alan, you famously used the term irrational exuberance to describe the bullish sentiment that was driving up stock prices uh, during the dot-com bubble. I believe you used the term in 1996 in a speech. Do you see any signs of irrational exuberance in asset prices? Well, let me put it to you this way. I think there are two bubbles. We have a stock market bubble and we have a bond market bubble. I think in the end of the day, the bond market bubble will eventually be the critical issue. But for the short term, it's not too bad. But we're working, obviously, towards a major increase uh, in long-term interest rates. And that has a very important impact, as you know, on the whole structure of the economy. So we're, we're in a bond market bubble. You don't believe uh, in the proclamations that a bear market has begun in bonds. So this move towards 3%, we're not there yet, obviously. If we do get there, it can't sustain itself. What's behind that? What's behind the bubble? Well, the fact, uh, essentially, that we're uh, beginning to run an ever larger government deficit. Remember that we're talking now about deficits going to a trillion dollars. But debt has been rising very significantly. And we are, in fact, if you wanted to take the, the, congressional, the Congressional Budget Office figures at face value, 
we're going to run through the peaks of where we were during World War II on the right. ratio of federal <clears throat> debt to GDP, which was extraordinarily high. And I think we're just not paying enough attention to that. Chairman Greenspan, you've worked with members of the Democratic Party, the Republican Party as well, any number of administrations. You've advised any and all in Washington. What's different about the Republican Party today as the majority party from the times of your service? Where did the frugality go? Where did the prudence go? Good question. If you find it, let me know. <laughs> well, you know, there's an acclaimed photo, uh, Chairman Greenspan, of you laying down in the office of, I think, Vice President Ford. You were laying down on the job in the Oval Office. If you were to lay down in the Oval Office today with President Trump, what would be your advice to the president? Uh, join me on the floor, Mr. President. <laughs> And then what would you talk about? I mean, I'm serious. What then, would you... then, 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 the, then the conversation would become classified. Oh, then it, I'll, I'll go with you that. It'll become I'll, I'll go with a classified combination. One of the mysteries, sir, and what we saw in Davos certainly is the mystery of modern technology. You are the archkeeper of data, whether it's railroads or airplanes or whatever. Do we have a grasp of how technology influences our economic growth? Oh, well, very much we have a whole series of them. I mean, remember that when you disaggregate output per hour, which is the critical long-term determinant of standards of living, there are many ways to come at it. And we now have a very large body of data which enables us to see uh, where productivity is going. I mean, for example, the slowdown in productivity uh, over the last decade is very clearly the result of entitlements, entitlements crowding out gross domestic savings dollar for dollar. And when gross domestic savings declines and we can't borrow f from abroad anymore, mm -hmm. remember we have an $8 trillion debt to overseas. So the combination of domestic, gross domestic savings declining as a percent of GDP uh, and entitlements rising uh, is the is uh, uh, inevitable result that was we've seen in recent years. It's going to be a fiscal challenge, to be sure. Uh, Alan Greenspan, I want to end with Jerome Powell uh, changing of the guard when he takes over as the Fed chairman. What will be number one on his to-do list? What does he need to do first? Open his mail. No, you're supposed to say, Chairman Greenspan, figure out how to use his Bloomberg terminal. That's what we would like you uh, to say. Alan Greenspan, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate uh, your uh, time. We look forward to your birthday in early March as well. Diane Swank hanging on every word at Grant Thornton. I mean, an interesting conversation, uh, uh, Diane, with Chairman Greenspan. And I think we go back to what you see in the Midwest, which is it's a different America than the time of Chairman Greenspan. The technology overlay today is extraordinary. How do you interpret a Grant Thornton tick by tick, day by day, technology into this American economy, or do you have no clue where productivity is, and you really have no clue where GDP is? 
Well, it really is complicated. There's no question about it. And it's making it harder and harder for the statistical agencies to, believe it or not, to stay ahead of these measurements because they have to get funded to be able to get the improvements they need to measure with big data. They've been doing a lot of experimentation with it. There are some improvements out there, but I think Chair Greenspan really made a couple of really good points about, one, the concern about debt and deficits. This is something he's always been a deficit hawk. He was on the 1982 Social Security Commission, and I think he brings up some very important points on that. And before I go into the technology piece, I want to point out it's the, his, the evidence on what happens to interest rates is not just the deficits and not just the level of debt. It's the trajectory of debt, mm. which he's laying out a very dire scenario on and which we do have a very dire scenario on. And it's trajectory of debt. When it goes up, countries eventually pay. We've got an extraordinary pass so far, but eventually you cannot escape the fact that bills have to be paid and the rest of the world is watching and the rest of the world is also dealing with debt as well. So this is something that will be an issue. And I think he made some very good points on that. The other side of it on technology is that Chair Greenspan also sort of went into some areas where we know that productivity growth has been high in information technology. That's where wages have been highest, but very concentrated. It hasn't been broad-based and spread out all over the economy. And that's what we're seeing as well in the data is that even though everyone has a smartphone now, yeah. that doesn't necessarily make them all more productive. And having two millennials of my own that are in college, I've seen that that can happen. Oh, yeah. Well, not I think, always more productive. I think we've all seen that in person. Actually, yeah, it's actually the inverse of productivity. Right? <laughs> exactly. So, Michelle, I think fun. that's true. <laughs> Ira Jersey, Diane was talking about the trajectory of debt. Uh, yep. When you look at the sell-off in treasuries, uh, there's going to be a lot of supply coming to market fairly is, soon yep. as well. How much of this week's sell-off is a supply story? I, I think part of it's a supply story, but we've known that that supply was coming. Um, this morning, the Treasury Department just told us exactly how we'll get it, which is much more in two- and three-year notes and a lot less than uh, in 10 and 30 year notes, uh, but they're still increasing issuance throughout the curve. So there's going to be uh, you know, a trillion dollars of debt coming. Uh, we know that already. And to Diane's point, I think you know, we, we have this push and pull. One of two things has to happen in order for us to eventually pay our debts. Either, um, either we pay more in taxes mm -hmm. or we have to somehow inflate our way out of it and have much faster growth. And it's not obvious how you get to yeah. that part. Diane, I want to bring up this chart because we've seen the two-year leap out to 2.16%. Do you have in your head, Diane Swank, a critical level, a critical threshold for two-year yield or 10-year yield where it does begin to affect the American economy? I don't have an exact threshold, but I think one of the, you know, Chair, Chair Greenspan's always been really good at Greenspeak. And when he said, you know, when is inflation coming, he said soon. And he said um, interest rates are going to go up a lot. He didn't say how much. I think, you know, you have to remember that from these low levels, you get back to 3%, you're back in tapered um, tantrum territory. That's something we've had recently. You get above 3.5%, you're talking about a major percentage increase in long-term interest rates. And that's not only an increase in interest expense for <coughs> all debtors out there, but the interest expense on our debt as well. And so you start to get those kinds of interactions. And I think when you start to get three and a half, three and three quarter percent interest rates, yep. even though historically they're low, those are significant. Diane, very quickly, do we get there before the March FOMC meeting? No. I hope not. If we do, then you really have burst the bond market bubble overnight. <laughs> so um, I won't say no for sure, because I don't know. And if I did, I'd know to buy an island yeah. where they don't have hurricanes. But um, other than that. that, I just don't know. All right. Diane Swank, honesty uh, there on the markets. Diane Swank of Grant Thornton in Chicago, thank you so much for joining us. Ira Jersey of Bloomberg Intelligence is sticking with us. Now, coming up, 
Bill Gross of Janice Henderson joins the conversation. We'll talk bond yields, we'll talk markets, and we'll talk about the Fed. This is The Fed Decides on Bloomberg TV and radio. This is The Fed Decides on Bloomberg Television and Radio. I'm Scarlett Fu from our world headquarters in New York. Still with us is Ira Jersey, Bloomberg Intelligence's chief U.S. rates strategist. And Ira, when we look at uh, what Jerome Powell, who will be sworn in as the new Fed chair this evening, I believe, right? Uh, I don't remember well, his, exactly his tenure begins. But his tenure begins, yeah, tenure begins soon. Okay, his tenure begins soon. Is it important for him to establish his independence right away? I mean, we're looking at a rate increase anyway in March, but is that an important marker to set? So one of the things that's gone on with the Federal Reserve over the last couple of years is really, um, you know, more control or, or more... Um, I don't want to say independence, but certainly more input from the other members. So presidents and governors, you know, certainly they've been out there. When Alan Greenspan was chair, he's, what he said, that's what the Fed said. Mm-hmm. That's what the Fed did. Mm-hmm. The Fed did everything that he wanted. And, and the Fed chair certainly guides things. But Jerome Powell will have his own style. And will he try and be like Alan Greenspan and, and uh, you know, be a little bit less open when it comes to uh, taking in other people's ideas? Or will he be conciliatory and say, look, if you really think that we should hike rates seven times this year, Go ahead and say that. But, you know, that's not my view. All right. We also want to bring in Bloomberg Economics Chief U.S. Economist Carl Riccadonna. And, Carl, you came prepared with a chart as well uh, to look at some of the things uh, Jerome Powell will need to confront when he becomes chair. And one of them, of course, is this flattening yield curve. Right. Absolutely. So uh, what I show in the chart on the screen here uh, is uh, basically uh, the choose 10 spread uh, relative to Fed hikes. And uh, we can see that uh, under the Greenspan Fed, uh, when we got about, that was probably about seven hikes into the uh, tightening cycle, uh, we saw a similar flatness in the yield curve. And uh, so this has been a lot of discussion in the marketplace lately uh, that uh, because of the flatness in the curve, the Fed will be constrained. Uh, and if the Powell Fed operates anything like the Greenspan Fed, something Ira was alluding to, to uh, Greenspan blew right through that and uh, didn't uh, concern himself too much with the uh, uh, flatness or eventual inversion of mm-hmm. the curve. Uh, the Fed uh, tightened at least as much uh, thereafter as they did running up to that. You know, one of the things is they can't help this, right? So if the Federal Reserve wants to keep on hiking, they're going to keep on getting flattening. It's just the way that the market is going to work. Unless they say that they're going to slow down their hikes, uh, you're not likely to see a significant re-steepening in the yield curve. Right. To the extent that the market uh, has confidence in the Fed uh, keeping inflation under control, uh, then you're not Mm. going to see that uh, meaningful backup. Carl, where's normal? I think none of us know, and there's too many plugins to get to normal, whether it's a Taylor rule or whatever rule you want to use. How far from normal are we, even if we know where it is? I think if we see growth picking up in a more sustained fashion, uh, and mind you, we're not at 3% growth yet, but we're heading towards probably a sustainable pace of two and a half to th- two and three quarters growth this year, right. and maybe 3% beyond that, uh, that you're going to see the Fed finally tweaking their longer run growth estimates in the other direction. So if we have confidence that we can get back to 2% GDP growth, back to 2% inflation, uh, then I think uh, the view of normal, be it 
trend growth in the economy right. or the normal level of the Fed funds rate uh, could start to creep higher as well. Then critical, Ira Jersey, what's the market say to that? I mean, does the market agree with that assessment or are they still far apart from the Powell Fed? Uh, I, well, we, we, I, I'm not convinced that we exactly know what the Powell Fed's going to do, but I think the market's anticipating continued, uh, c- continued increases in, in hikes. Certainly, you know, we're pricing five-ish hikes now over the next two years. That's, you know, more or less the, uh, um, the pace that, that two-year notes is certainly pricing in. So the question then becomes, you know, how much does the other side, how much does the supply side wind up dripping into uh, bond yields and pricing? And with much more supply in twos and threes, I'd have to imagine that it's not going to be for a much steeper yield curve. Can you get to normal, though, Carl, when you've got the ECB and the BOJ staying so accommodative? Uh, well, that uh, complicates uh, the, uh, the trend as we've here. Seen. As we see, you know, potentially, I think, uh, for example, the movement we've seen in uh, the dollar uh, to date uh, this year has been more determined by BOJ and ECB comments yes. than uh, necessarily any uh, reassessment of the uh, trajectory for the Fed. So that's going to be an important uh, moving part uh, in the background, uh, absolutely. And whether the dollar is going up or down uh, really uh, influences the impact of uh, how much uh, uh, normalization the Fed has to pursue as well. So if we see the dollar, which is down about 10% year on year, if that trend is continuing, that's right. going to be inflationary, it's going to be pro-growth, and it's going to mean that the Powell Fed may have to do a little more rather than a little less. I want to introduce this chart right now. We're going to use this with Mr. Gross here in a little bit, but I want to use it with Mr. Jersey right now. We quote yield, 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 yield at Bloomberg Surveillance all day. Scarlet's screaming at me, quote price sometime. Once okay, in a while. Okay, so here's price. Back to yeah. Thanksgiving, the oh. white circle, and Ira Jersey, I'm Sorry, if it is a bear market, it looks like a bear market. When is there a bear market in bonds? Price down, yield up. It's 3.6% down from Thanksgiving, an annualized 19% down. How do you know when you're in a bond bear market? Well, so, so the price is down, but you also get income at the same time. I, we're, we're in a bear market, if you want to call it that, because prices will probably continue to fall modestly. What, what's interesting is that over the last 30 years, we've never had a two-year period where we've had negative returns for, um, for, for Treasury securities. And I, I think that that's important because what tends to happen is you get these sharp sell-offs they wind up lasting for a couple of months, and then yield, and then the bond yield stabilizes. And when they, as they stabilize, you continue to get interest on right. that, and you wind up building back up some kind of some some income. And uh, so, so how long will this last? It could last a long time. I'm a little skeptical that we're going to see this disaster, uber high yields. We're going to see four percent ten year yields by in 2019. I don't think that. That being said, this year has been terrible for bonds so far. Where are you on the idea of the percentage of the strategists you read, the economists you read, to think we're going to blow through Bill Gross's 2.90% and go on to a true higher yield regime? I don't think we're going into a meaningfully higher yield regime now. I was There's no evidence Ira. of it. Exactly. We have to see a, a much more pronounced uptick in inflation. So what we're trending in a positive direction, that doesn't mean we're blowing the doors off uh, to any degree that would uh, justify really right. a substantial back. Martin said the same thing. Too. Mind you, how much debt is out there, whether it's household debt uh, uh, right. at uh, floating rate uh, uh, mortgages and whatnot, uh, a little bit of backup in rates will really uh, take a toll on uh, interest-sensitive mm-hmm. spending in the economy, be it household or corporate. This is The Fed Decides on Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. We are with Bloomberg Economics Chief U.S. Economist Carl Riccadonna. Also with us is Ira Jersey, Bloomberg Intelligence Chief Rates Strategist. We were talking about the move higher in yield, the move down in bond prices. 
are buyers going to start emerging as the spread between U.S. Treasuries and Eurozone yields gets wider and wider and, and we get to that 3%? Because that's what we've seen in the past. It's been a consistent reaction. Right. It's what we've seen in the past. It's what we saw going back to the, the chart I brought with me yes. about uh, the Greenspan Fed and the uh, uh, flattening of the curve, if not inversion. Uh, there is a global glut of capital sloshing around looking for higher returns. Uh, and so I, I think that, uh, you know, we talk about economic fundamentals, be it growth and inflation uh, driving uh, the uh, dynamics of the Treasury yield curve. But we also have to factor in uh, foreign capital flows. Yes. And I think that could be a very important driver this year, uh, not only given the fluctuations in the currency and that surplus of capital, uh, but uh, one particular policy, this repatriation of foreign earnings, uh, which is incentivized by the tax reforms. Uh, and so we could look back to, for instance, the uh, 2001 to 2007 cycle. Uh, the dollar was continually weakening over that period, uh, with the exception of two years. And those two years were the period where we were incentivizing uh, repatriation of uh, foreign earnings uh, in that period as well. So I think that uh, all of that cash flowing back into the U.S. Uh, helps to uh, grease the skids uh, for uh, President Trump to uh, uh, pursue a more aggressive, more expansive uh, fiscal policy. I just want to say, Scarlett, for Bloomberg Radio, I'm putting out that bond price chart mm. right now just as we get the one ready that for shows price gross. down. Price down. Price down. Yield up. Right. That's Except a, it doesn't show you. That's up. my Fabozzi moment for the day. Continue while I put this out for Bloomberg Radio. So, so I'd just like to add something. So we, we keep on talking about, you know, high interest rates, what's going to happen because we have two-year yields going up. I think it's important to note that the structure of the economy has changed over the last 20 years, where a lot, both governments in the United States and municipal governments, as well as corporations, have extended the amount of debt that they have. So they've extended their term. And they've really used the last seven years or so to do quite a lot of that. So I think it might take a little longer than some people realize for higher interest rates to really filter in to the real economy. So you look, think, look at things like weighted average cost of capital for corporations. That's not going to go up the same way as it did when they were funded 20 or 25 percent with like <coughs> three-month loans in commercial paper. Okay. But then with the mergers and acquisitions now, you see it with Snapple and the rest of them, and uh, Dr. Pepper Snapple in the last uh, number of days, are they looking at yields as a nominal cost, or are they looking at real yields, which are basically we're giving money away? Well, I, I think in, uh, they probably use a lot of uh, nominal costs. Uh, but the fact uh, is, issue. real yields are but next to nothing. Real yields do matter, yeah, for, for sure, in a lot of people's minds, but that uh, only insofar as they can actually pass along price increases. So the question is, how much of the price increases and, and wage pressures, for example, can be passed along to the consumer? It's certainly one of the things that's been keeping things down. But, you know, Carl did a great piece today on the employment cost index. And, you know, maybe, um, you know, maybe if, if employment costs keep on going up, one of two things has to happen. Either you get more inflation or you get margin pressure. One is okay for things like equity markets and, and corporate debt. One is not. Yeah, certainly. I, I want to go back to that point about how things get pushed out because structurally the economy is different than what it was before. How much time did companies, did governments buy with the ability to push things out further? Well, so so in uh, so the U.S. government, for example, they extended their average maturity from about three and a half years to almost six years in in terms of uh, um, in in terms of average maturity of their debt. So basically, they bought themselves a lot of time. They yeah. basically said, "Okay, interest rates are super low. We're going to cut two and three year debt." Back in 2013 and 14, they cut the amount of short term debt that they were issuing, and they issued a lot of long term debt. So their liabilities now are far longer. Now they are worried about you know certain walls of maturities and now that they're issuing more debt in the front end um, you know 
this is a problem, but it gets pushed out a little further. So my point there was, you know, how much of today's hikes are going to be built into the economy in six months? It's not obvious to me that it's six months anymore. These long and variable lags that monetary policy takes might be even longer than the Fed even thinks. How worried should we be about funding the government and the debt ceiling, Carl? It seems like we were really worried about it earlier this month, and they kicked the can down the road for a couple of weeks, and we kind of all forgot about it. Sure. We went back to watching the stock market rise. Well, I think you know, as we kick that can closer and closer to midterm elections, uh, people are not going to be willing to uh, shut down the government and then uh, potentially face the consequences <coughs> of that uh, come uh, November. Uh, more broadly, as we think about government funding, I mean, if you look at, uh, you know, and Ira will say, don't use these uh, traditional models, but if we look at uh, just the nominal GDP growth uh, versus a 10-year yield, uh, there's a pretty good correlation over the broad history of time. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, if you look in the last five years or so, you can see that uh, 10-year yields are low relative to those economic fundamentals, and that's giving you a free pass to increase issuance. Bring up this chart. I don't have a banner for it, but we don't need one. Ari Jersey, help me here with how distorted we are in these times. This is the price of Apple paper out to 2030 that's paying three quarters of a percent per year in Swiss francs. You have to pay up a premium to own this thing. It was up at 110. It's down at 101. I mean, that's just one example of the distortions in your world. Sure. And when you look at places like uh, other currencies, we have to remember the funding in those currencies matter for, for one thing. So Swiss rates are lower than U.S. rates <coughs> and rates are lower than U.S. rates, for example. Um, but, you know, the question is, are you willing to buy Swiss francs and make that amount of money? And if you do all the hedges that you have right. to do to hedge out your currency risk, you'll realize that if you were to buy that Swiss franc that you're only make you're only making a little bit less than you are to buy treasuries. So, you know, it's not as distorted as you might think. Yeah. Ira Jersey with us and Carl Riccadon as well from Bloomberg as we uh, uh, discuss here these interesting times in economics, investment and finance. When Dan Fuss speaks, Bill Gross listens. We know that for certain. Here is the legend of Loomis sales. Assuming our economy stays as strong as it seems to be, and assuming that inflation rates gradually climb, and I suspect there's a slight lag in the inflation rates, uh, then I would expect the Fed to keep going. The, the open question then becomes, well, how, you know, how far, how long? Um, does the 10-year go to four? That's a stretch. Dan Fuss speaking the gospel, according to Bill Gross. And we're pleased that Mr. Gross joins us today from Janice Henderson. Bill, agree with me. It's always good to hear from Dan Fuss with his experiment as well, uh, his experience, rather. We've seen price down, yield up. Let me cut to the chase, Bill Gross. Are we in a bond bear market? Well, I think we are. I think we've been there for a while. That uh, a few months ago, and I, I, I think there are a number of reasons for that, Tom. Although I would, um, y- you know, suggest that the bear market that I see is probably a mild one, with the, the ten-year going to three percent. But let's let's put some of the pieces together in terms of the puzzle. Please. Uh, nominal GDP is moving higher from four percent, which is average for the past five years, to <laughs> about five. Um, you know, inflation is moving slightly higher, as the Fed noted. 
today. And I, I think ultimately, um, you know, the Treasury in terms of the, the budget deficit is perhaps an important factor as well that many analysts have, have failed to mention. You know, the, the Treasury is going to be issuing about $500 billion more, more this year than they did last year. And that's because the deficit is moving up to, you know, close to a trillion dollars. And that's because, uh, you know, basically that, uh, that the Fed itself is reducing its balance sheet. And so, you know, I, I wonder who will buy, you know, the, the, the current level of bonds, uh, you know, r relative to what has happened in the past. Because in the past, central banks have bought in the future. Uh, the private market is going to be forced to buy. Bill Gross, we've heard from Martin Feldstein today of Harvard and also Chairman Greenspan, and both of them have great concern over consecutive and maybe even more than consecutive trillion-dollar deficits. Do you change how you manage money because in 24 months, Bill Gross is going to enjoy a trillion-dollar U.S. deficit? <laughs> well, I think, uh, you know, an investor has to do that if you're a vigilante. And I, I would suggest that the bond vigilantes are sort of down the list in terms of control or power relative to what they used to have. Central banks basically are in charge. Um, but a trillion dollar deficit, to my way of thinking, you know, entails a substantial supply, a new supply, as I just suggested, of, of treasuries. And uh, if the Fed is not buying, actually the Fed is selling and reducing this balance sheet, then, then who will buy? And so it, it takes a higher interest rate, to my way of thinking, supply yeah. and demand. It takes a higher interest rate for d demand to meet supply going forward. Bill, I want to get your thoughts on what we've seen the last couple of days with regards to uh, markets and equity markets in particular. It was if you want to be generous, a sell-off in U.S. stocks because the Dow had its biggest two-day decline uh, since before pr President Trump was elected. Do you take anything away from that, or was this a long-awaited consolidation? Well, I think uh, some of the latter, I suppose, a long-awaited consolidation. But I think what uh, is driving that consolidation is the realization that the yields will be moving higher on the 10-year. Um, you know, just several weeks ago, they were at 2 now they're at 2.75%. Uh, and does that matter? You know, I, I think many pundits uh, suggest that, uh, you know, it'll take a 4% 10-year Treasury to affect the market. I don't think so. I, I think the economy is, you know, significant. A 3% Treasury will begin to affect, you know, relative valuations in terms of uh, stocks, in terms of utility prices, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I think it's all due to the bond market. I think there's a good correlation now. And if Treasury yields move higher, then perhaps stocks right. will continue to consolidate or move a little bit lower. Right. We've also seen uh, Wall Street banks, Credit Suisse among them, forecasting this shift from pensions into fixed income assets from equities, especially after the big run up we've seen in U.S. stocks this year. Do you see it playing out the way that they expect or are the returns in bonds still too low for that? Well, I, I think that's the case. I, you know, I think a, a um, astute pension uh, fund manager would probably want to take some uh, gains and, and uh, put some of that back into bonds. But uh, the return on bonds, uh, just the same, is, is probably not attractive to uh, pension managers, but it helps them to basically uh, you know, solidify their duration or match their durations. Um, you know, what is a 10-year holder of treasuries um, or a holder of 10-year treasuries expect for the next year? You know, if it moves to 3%, you're going to 
get 2.75% in terms of interest and lose about 2.75% in terms of price. So right. uh, there's nothing there in terms of treasuries either. No, let me bring up this chart we showed earlier, Bill Gross. We say good morning and good afternoon to all of you around the world on Bloomberg Television and Radio. William Gross of Janice Henderson with us, with our Carl Riccadonna and Ira Jersey as well. Uh, Bill, it's just simply the 10-year yield and down, down we go. Bloomberg Radio, I put this out on Twitter for your... This is the price. This is the price. Uh, this is price. Price down. Bill's aware of this. It's an unconstrained move down in the price of the 10-year yield. Bill Gross, this is all linked in and correlated to other markets. How did you respond to the weak dollar policy of Mr. Mnuchin, hmm. the president's adjustment to an ultimately strong dollar policy, and how does that fold into what you do unconstrained every day at Janice Henderson? Well, Tom, I, I, I don't listen too much to uh, to. President Trump or Mnuchin in, in terms of what policy they want. I, I think they, they speak with a uh, forked tongue or with, uh, uh, you know, d different scenarios in order to please the market. I think what's important in terms of the dollar, and we know the dollar's been down 10% basically over the past 12 months relative to other currencies, is, is the budget deficit. If, if we're moving to a trillion dollars, yes. that basically, you know, scares foreign investors in terms of holding dollars because it means, you know, that uh, the, the fiscal situation is deteriorating. So I, I think uh, I would pay more attention to, you know, perhaps the success or lack of success of the infrastructure uh, program advanced last night and the fact that even without that, you know, we're headed towards a trillion dollars in terms of a deficit and a, a weak dollar is probably what we should expect as opposed to a strong dollar. So within that, a weak dollar and higher yields, maybe up to a bracketed 2.9%, 3% yield, does Bill Gross just assume more volatility for investors in the next 12 months? Yeah, I think a little bit more time, certainly on the, on the stock side. I mean, the VIX got so low down to about uh, 9, and now it's uh, moving appreciably higher. Um, on the bond market, too, volatility got low. Um, I, I don't think we're in a, a period of time in which volatility spikes significantly higher because central banks are still in control. And if uh, things got out of hand in terms of yields or out of hand in terms of lower stock prices, then the Fed you know, probably wouldn't increase interest rates by the expected three or four times. I, I simply think they're going up by one or two times in mm. you know, 2018, and that should dampen volatility significantly. Well, we'll see how that all plays out. Bill Gross of Janice Henderson, thank you for your time. We want to get our final thoughts now from Ira Jersey of Bloomberg Intelligence and Carl Riccadonna of Bloomberg Economics. And uh, Ira, let's start with uh, Janet Yellen's legacy, because most people grade her very highly when it comes to managing the economy and, and managing the transition back to normalization, <laughs> however you want to define it. But there are some criticisms about how Yellen performed at the politics of her role. Yeah, so, so I think Janet Yellen was great in the fact that she went from a uber-accommodative policy and said, hey, we don't need this uber-accommodative policy. When, when she came in, we all thought she was going to be very dovish because she was when she was president of the San Francisco Fed, So, and, and she wasn't. But when she brought up things to Congress, like um, typical fiscal type of things, like income inequality, for example, she was criticized for that. And I think that damaged her reputation with some members of Congress. Now, Jerome Powell is coming in, and he might have a friendly Congress this year, but we're not sure after the midterm well, elections what will happen next year. Do you agree with Ira Jersey that there's a mystery to Chairman Powell? 
Uh, I, I think that uh, obviously he's untested in the seat, and even when he was uh, just a uh, governor, uh, he had uh, sparse public comments. Well, so, the, clear, so there is some degree very of very regulatory based, right? Really very regulatory know. based. Um, what we have heard from him on the economy seems very consistent with Yellen's view of the world. Yeah. Maybe a tad bit uh, more hawkish than uh, Yellen has uh, been, and we also know that he was uh, a little bit less of a uh, uh, proponent of uh, the unconventional policy of quantitative easing. Uh, relative to Chair Yellen. So in peacetime, that should do just fine. Uh, if the economy rolls over in a bad way, uh, then that would be reason for concern. Always gloomy. Oh, I love that. In peacetime, Carl Riccadonna, sure Bloomberg Economic, uh, Economics Chief U.S. Economist, and of course, Ira Jersey, Chief Rates Strategist here for us at Bloomberg Intelligence. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.